Hello, I'm Joshua Groisberg, a history enthusiast. And I'm Jacob Friedman, founder of People's Big News. And this is Gen Zero's Talk Politics. This is where two members of the next generation of American adults talk about what's going on in the world. Since the whole world is on fire, we might as well take a crack at delivering some insightful analysis and maybe some comedy along the way. We'd like to welcome Guillaume Colomb back to the show. Guillaume is a student at Tufts University who has been focusing on the rise of authoritarianism and right-wing disinformation for the past few years. Guillaume, welcome back. Thank you so much, Jacob, for having me for another good opportunity like this. Thank you. Let's just get right into it. So the Russians have invaded Ukraine. The U.S. is still trying to figure out what exactly the boundaries are as how to approach this. Sanctions, no-fly zones. But one of the big theories floating around is that the war was caused by NATO's imperialist expansion in, as closer to Russian, Russian territory. And that's mm. why Putin's invading Ukraine, which, is, which means that NATO, the alliance that was meant to defend um, liberal democracy from the Soviet Union, that is now the aggressor. It is somehow the you know, perpetrator in, in, in taking Ukraine away from Russian influence. For the uninitiated, why is this theory wrong and why did it take shape like this to begin with? Yeah, for sure. I mean, as a conspiracy theory, the NATO being a, an imperialist aggressor started around even subsequently after the demise of the Soviet Union around 1991 and 1992. And it's important to know Vladimir Putin's perspective on this, who's currently the president, because he was a KGB officer back in the 90s. And what he saw essentially with the formation of NATO and more importantly, what came out of it because of the uh, demise of the Soviet Union was this diminishment of the former Soviet Union or what he generally conceived of as a great Russian nation state into what was then considered to be a very crony capitalistic environment that wasn't nearly up to the reputation that it would idealistically have in an idealistic environment. It came out of a grievance from the Russian government specifically coming out of the demise of the Soviet Union, that NATO being a Western alliance force unduly accumulated power off from Russia, which was duly theirs. And so that's where the conspiracy theory is generally held. In terms of why it's wrong in the first place, NATO was formed as a protection against such an aggressive state such as the Soviet Union or the current Russian state as it is. And it also was formed as a way to respond to emergencies around not only the continent of Europe, but across other territories, such as notably in, in Afghanistan. So, of course, NATO is a legitimate transnational organization. But this conspiracy theory about NATO being an imperialist force was generally driven from grievance. That, that, that makes sense. So another theory that has been running around was this that Putin and the Russian army are undergoing the denazification of Ukraine, that Ukraine is run by Nazis, is full of Nazis, and that Russia is trying to destroy the Nazis, mm-hmm. even though that Ukraine has a Jewish president, Volodymyr Zelensky, who as recently a few months ago, signed a bill combating anti-Semitism. And he's proud to be Jewish, and there has been much talk of his uh, background as, as a Jew mm-hmm. in Ukraine. So... Where does this theory come from? Why is this coming out of Moscow? I mean, of course, coming out from Moscow, you have to mention World War II because the Soviets, of course, faced the Nazis. And so the Russians from the Kremlin's 
particular perspective, especially from the perspective of Vladimir Putin and other governmental officials, is that outside threats more or less kind of make this equivalence to the Nazis. And they see Ukraine as kind of a continuation of what happened to them during World War II. And of course, it's based off of anti-Semitism because of course, claiming the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky, who is a notable Jewish political advocate in and of himself, is promulgating this Nazi rule in Ukraine is obviously absurd, but it relies off of this, again, what a continuation was, even from the NATO alliance conspiracy theory, is the sense of grievance and resentment amongst the Russian people for what was lost. And they viewed the Nazis in World War II as an imperialist force that got Russian power away from them, even for a momentary bit. And so they see the Nazis in their perspective in a very anti-Semitic way in Ukraine, in that they're being aggressors to Russia and they're taking power away from Russia. So they basically see um, what happened in the 1930s, 1940s. They see that Putin sees that happening now with Ukraine taking power from Russia. That's basically where this comes from. Yes, with all with some significant alterations, it's still a continuation of what was happening in World War II in the Kremlin's perspective. Of course, it's not what's happening on the ground and even in international politics in general. But that's what the Kremlin wants the Russian people to believe. Wow, 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 wow. A third theory that is running around is that there are U.S.-funded biolabs in mm-hmm. Ukraine with bioweapons that, according to this theory, we kind of just left there. Now that, the Rush, now that there's war going on, there's little bombings of the entire country of uh, Ukraine and those uh, bioweapons are going to be leaked out and they're going to cause even more pandemics. They're going to, get, mm-hmm. going to be in another COVID pandemic. Where does this come from? Why is now do we have this whole thing about, you know, bioterrorism, bioweapons? Where does this come from? Well, I think the bioterrorism conspiracy theory in particular is coming from Putin's desperation that the Ukrainian war isn't going as well as he thinks. Because originally speaking, he, of course, talked about and discussed at length in the Russian government, specifically the denazification efforts in Ukraine. And he still talks about that quite a bit. But because a lot of international organizations aren't paying attention to it, not only just not paying attention to it, but not buying it in credibility, and that other nations are calling out on Russia and implementing their own sorts of diplomatic, political, and economic sanctions, he's transitioning to another conspiracy theory, which is what you kind of said previously that Ukraine is operating these illegal bioterroristic bioweapons manufacturing facilities that potentially can start the next pandemic and even worse, be an imperialist sort of demonstration against Russian power. Of course, it's not what's happening because international agencies such as the International Atomic Energy Agency checked and specific bio labs in Ukraine are completely legitimate and have been for years, well before this U.S. and Ukraine war has occurred in the first place. So, of course, this is completely false. But again, Putin's becoming very desperate. The fact that Russia, as an army and as a nation state, is only incrementally getting in Ukraine. Remember, it's really important to note that Putin thought that the invasion of Ukraine specifically could be conducted within 48 hours, 72 hours, or in a very short, specific time. But because it's going to be not only a multi-week operation, but potentially a multi-month operation that could expand into a few years even, what's comparable to other international conflicts in the past, Putin's very desperate for an explanation. And this is like a post-facto explanation. So we've gone over these theories. 
And a lot of these are being spread by the likes of Tucker Carlson Tonight, <laughs> the most popular cable primetime show on Fox News. But we're also seeing this from people like Tulsi Gabbard, former presidential candidate mm-hmm. for the Democratic primaries and former uh, Hawaii representative in Congress. We also see Glenn Greenwald from The Intercept, noted liberal libertarian figure. Why are these theories catching on in these like outsider, you know, folk populist circles? Like, why are these people gravitate to these? Theories? Why are they getting so much traction? When it comes to the ideological and political foundation for where these beliefs come from, there's always always a very reliable phenomenon or this political developmental trend that I always go back to, which is called the horseshoe theory. And it essentially posits that the extremes of the left and the right wing, although having significant differences in towards of who they view as marginalized and who they view as victimized in order for their political agenda to become an actual reality, they have very similar positions on their grievances. So what you see with Tulsi Gabbard, who claims to be a Democrat, who I personally believe to be a far more sympathetic figure in the far right, personally speaking, but who claims to be a Democrat on the left, has very similar views to Tucker Carlson, who's obviously on the far right. And that's not a coincidence. So what essentially aligns these people is this sort of ideological alliance in anti-interventionism being very basic, anti American interventionism, specifically in terms of international affairs. So they don't like the United Nations. They hate internationalism specifically. They find common cause with Vladimir Putin on many ideological foundations, and specifically their perceptions of this very decadent, bad Western culture that's emerging out of the Democratic Party. I know it's very redundant, politically speaking, and just very basic to say that they always share this anti-Biden, anti-democratic alliance, but it's extremely important to note that because they have very similar grievances. And people like Tucker Carlson, for example, who have made themselves very much associated with the political ideologies of somebody like Vladimir Putin, have very similar perceptions on what they see as the exact same problems in America, multiculturalism, being more democratic than it was in the past and having leaders not disagree with them personally. So it's these sort of problems that combine that make them align on this issue. Well, I'd say it's not just a big D democratic, like a democratic party. It's also Mm -hmm. liberal democracy, you know, small Mm -hmm. L, small D, uh, European Union, NATO, uh, the US being the, you know, heading up liberal hegemony, liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. Tucker Carlson does not come from working class background, uh, you know, yeah. we all suppose we'll vote for Trump. Tulsi Gabbard is a major figure in the Army, in National Guard in Hawaii. Glenn Greenwald is some famous reporter from The Intercept. Like, why are these people, though, heading up the big, like, the anti-elitist, the, the elites in America are lying to you. You know, they're funding biolabs in Ukraine. They're antagonizing Russia with the big, bad, you know, international alliance of NATO. You know, Vladimir Putin, the one halfway across the world we were all told to hate, he's the real victim here. You know, why is so much anti-elitist grievance? Like, what is Mm. the point of this? Yeah, I mean, of course, there was a particular point that I want to address previously before I answer your question. And this isn't a coincidence, of course, but I think a few years ago, Tucker Carlson visited Viktor Orban, who was the current prime minister of Hungary. And what you talked about specifically, this alliance for anti-liberal democracy or what Orban specifically calls it illiberal democracy, which is basically an oxymoron of itself because it's not possible, but that's what his perception is. This alliance between Carlson, the far right, a good amount of the far left even, and people like Orban in Europe 
to be this very illiberal democratic coalition isn't a coincidence because they want America's future to be similar to something like Hungary. They want America because although America can't be a completely authoritarian state that's say like in Belarus, for example, Tucker Carlson and many figures on the far right perceive Hungary as a potential future for America to be a part of, or at least replicate. They see this extremely rigid, competitive authoritarian political system where people can vote freely, technically speaking, but the results are always going to favor the elites in power and the exact same political figures that are in power. They want to replicate that here in America in some way or another. Going back to your point, this makes me sound like a socialist, but I'm not a socialist and I tell you I'm not, but there is this point that Karl Marx actually made made specifically in one of his readings that I found to be very relevant to today. And it's this idea of false consciousness. Elites, politically, economically, and socially speaking, want to maintain their power. And it's evident in human nature that they want to maintain their power. And in order to do so, we need to trick the working class, or let's say America's middle class, into accepting the political norms and to accepting the political establishment as it is. And so you see that with people like Tucker Carlson, where they, of course, never grew up in a middle-class environment. They don't specifically feel for the working class. And you can tell they don't feel for the working class, but they perceive themselves or they try to generate this false image of themselves as the heroes for the middle-class in America. And by doing that, they appease the poverty masses, they keep them satiated and satisfied, but that essentially makes much of a conservative base in America, very hospitable for political elite rule to continue. Because if the conservative base in America feels like they're being represented, they're not really gonna do anything about it. They're just gonna keep it as it is. So although Karl Marx was a very big extremist, his commentary about false consciousness really does apply in America. And it's exactly why Tucker Carlson makes this whole shtick fake about him being the man of the people. It's to maintain his power. It's to maintain his connections. And it's to maintain his relevance in American politics. Okay, so these guys are just, you know, propagandists. They're just trying to divide us. What do we do then? Unfortunately, I take a more realistic perspective. Disinformation specifically is an extraordinarily convoluted challenge and complication that's happening because of social media. And of course, we're not going to completely stop this information from existing on the planet Earth because there's so much disinformation specifically coming from governments like Russia. And not only that, but many independent political commentators in America, in Hungary, in Great Britain, everywhere spreads disinformation daily. So it's not completely possible to stop it, but we can mitigate it and people can actually do something. And I think one thing that people can do is focus on mainstream media organizations in America and specifically the way journalists conventionally frame some political extremist issue as a both sides matter, as establishing this equivalency between one side that's relatively normal in American politics and the other side, which is an extremist political ideology, and essentially establishing this equivalence, proclaiming that both sides are relatively equal on the same issue. And you see this with not just Russian disinformation that's coming out with denazification, where people in the New York Times and Associated Press are essentially writing in their articles and in their opinion sections that 
Russians claim that their efforts are for denazification without any historical context. It's also within domestic issues in American politics too. This is a different example, of course, out of the Russian-Ukrainian war, but specifically during the height of the aftermath of the January 6th insurrection, you saw a lot of this both sidesism within the mainstream media organization. Journalists within the Washington Post and the New York Times engaged in this, where the Democrats claimed and the right to investigation to understand what happened during January 6th, and then repeat Republican talking points on the other side of the issue, which, although seems fair, isn't fair because the Republicans were obviously dishonest in the reasons why they didn't want an investigation to happen. So it's a complicated explanation for this, but the mainstream media organizations need to be accurate and need to be honest in their news coverage because people read this stuff every day and they get their interpretations, not just from what they see. And I would argue not really what they see. It's what they read from other people. They get their main interpretations for, from who they believe in. And often they kind of, unfortunately, for better or worse, regurgitate some of that stuff. So being accurate in the reporting and putting that historical context in. So people can understand that denazification claims are just complete BS, needs to happen so people don't get misconceptions about this war and ultimately choose the wrong side on this issue. Gam, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a great conversation. Thank you for debunking these nonsensical theories. Yeah, uh, of course. Back if I can add just one more thing, I guess, this is just from my own yep. perspective, but a lot of what's happening, not just in domestic and political developments, but also what's happening in the international affairs. A lot of authoritarian leaders, not just in Russia or in Hungary, but in America specifically, count or kind of rely essentially on much of the population not acting or not holding accountable some of the independent fact checkers or the independent organizations that make the government work. No matter what they go every day, they not only need to hold themselves accountable, they need to hold other people accountable too. Because a lot of political leaders essentially regard the population as being satiated. And they don't want the population to act out in ways that differentiate from the convention. For people who are listening to this right now, don't be satisfied. Criticize what needs to be criticized because political leaders are depending on you not criticizing everything. All said. Gam, thank you so much. Come back anytime. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Jacob. And that concludes this episode of Gen Zero's Talk Politics. Be sure to join our Discord server, follow us on Instagram at Gen Zero's Talk Politics, and on Twitter at Gen Zero's Talk Poly with an I, and add or email us to ask your burning questions. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to see you next time.